Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is the dangerously delirious Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who once stole a motorcycle off the set of a 1950s gangster film, Mr. Ryan Siebold. What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? It is going swimmingly, although I must say that I am probably, I probably do not have a bright, shiny motorcycle sitting in my driveway the way that you do. Uh, I'd love to hear more about this story, Ryan. Please indulge the listeners and myself. I wanted this uh, shiny new bike. I was actually working on the set of this movie. It was a period piece, like you said. Uh, they filmed me, you know, getting away with the bike. So they got their shot they needed. Um, they, okay. they got a shot of someone leaving with uh, the bike. But uh, yeah, now I'm kind of in hiding, um, you know, doing this podcast in, in the bunker that is my <laughs> <laughs> my house with three locks. So do you, uh, but by the way, do you happen to recall the name of this film at all? The name of the film is Bootleggin' 2, Electric Boogaloo. That's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, it's That's awesome because I'm actually, I can't say that I'm familiar with bootlegging one, but I'm going to have to do some research. <laughs> <laughs> we just skipped right over bootlegging one. Um, yeah, we went right to bootlegging two, electric boogaloo. It, uh, it, A very it feels... controversial decision that the first one is actually going to be the second one because then what I would imagine is that the sequel will be the prequel. So... Bootlegging one will be bootlegging two. I'm, I'm telling you, man, I, I feel like this is why you don't make these decisions on cocaine. So, yeah, this one deals with uh, anti-habition. You know, we've covered prohibition to death. Um, this one <laughs> goes down the road of anti-habition, wherein everybody just drinks frivolously. Uh, you know, it, it takes place in Florida, it, you know, in present day. Um, <laughs> even though I said earlier it was a period piece, the period is now. So yeah, <laughs> we're just all over this everything all over the place, man. The world is ending. Uh, Pour way, a drink. Anti-habition is on. to it. Going to go ahead and check out my uh, local theater. Keep my eyes out for bootlegging too. Oh yeah. In it's not meantime, coming to the theaters. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to check my local red box for yeah. bootlegging too. You'll be lucky to find this on Tubi, like buried at the bottom of the menus. <laughs> Excellent. Well, in the meantime, we actually do have a film of slightly higher prestige. Why don't you actually tell us about this one, Ryan? Today's film is the sweet smell of success. That's, uh, that's how it smelled when I got home with that bike. Yeah, the sweet smell of success <laughs> from 1957, directed by Alexander McKendrick who I'm sure we're going to have some things to say about. Uh, Google has this summarized as New York City newspaper writer J.J. Hunsecker, played by Bud Lancaster. You can't say his name any other way. Uh, <laughs> Bud Lancaster. Bud Lancaster. 
uh, holds considerable <laughs> sway over public opinion with his Broadway column. But one thing that he can't control is his younger sister, Susan, who is in a relationship with aspiring jazz guitarist Steve Dallas. Hunsecker strongly disapproves of the romance and recruits publicist Sidney Falco, played by Tony Curtis, to find a way to split the couple, no matter how ruthless the method. Jason, dun, dun. as is the case every week, I'm going to ask you, what did you think about this movie? And as usual, Ryan, I will be happy to tell you right after we listen to this trailer for Sweet Smell of Success. Burt Lancaster as J.J. Hunsecker, world-famed columnist whose gossip is gospel to 60 million readers. Tony Curtis as Sidney Falco, the kid who had ideas about taking over. But we happen to know I'm your star pupil because I reflect back to you your own talent. I'd hate to take a bite of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. <laughs> Don't turn your back on him. You might find a knife in it. This is their story, and that of the big shots and big names who worship the sweet smell of success. Along Broadway, throughout Hollywood. Down Wall Street. On Capitol Hill, sweet smell of success. We're friends, Hobby. We go as far back as when you were a fresh kid congressman, don't we? Why is it that everything you say sounds like a threat? Maybe it's a mannerism, because I don't threaten friends. But why furnish your enemies with ammunition? And here you are, out in the open, where any hep person knows that this one is toting that one around for you. Sydney is a great salesman. He'd sell anything to get there. Just ask his girl. Sydney, I don't do this sort of thing. What sort of thing? This sort of thing. You need him for a favor, don't you? Well, so do I. I need his column tonight. All you think about is yourself and your column. You see yourself as some sort of a, a national glory. To me and lots of people like me, your, your slimy scandal and your phony patriotics. To me, Mr. Hunsecker, you're a national disgrace. Bert Lancaster as the almighty J.J. Hunsecker. Tony Curtis as his man of all dirty work. Introducing Susan Harrison and the Chico Hamilton Quintet. Okay, now, Ryan, so I am very conflicted about this movie, okay? Okay. I, I don't know how you feel about this, and, 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 I'll, and I'll tag you real quick before we actually get into the film, but uh, sure. I, I am of mixed emotions and opinions, and there's a lot of good, and there's a lot of bad, as far as I'm concerned. So... Uh, we're going to go into a lot of what those different qualities are. What did you think about the film? What did I think about this movie? Um, yeah, I think the same. I think that it was a very small story told in the biggest, most verbose way possible. <laughs> and on that there level, are a it's lot succeeded. of words on that screenplay for sure. There are a lot of awesome words on this screenplay. Yeah. Um, I have in my Ryan, notes here a cookie full of arsenic. <laughs> <laughs> right. That, I love the dialogue. Yeah. You have to love this dialogue. 
Uh, it's some of the most witty I've ever heard. And uh, it, yeah, it puts the Coen brothers to shame. And yeah, <laughs> I've just never heard so many amazing ways to say shut the fuck up uh, in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> they have a whole dictionary on uh, thesaurus on how to say shut the fuck up. Yeah, this is this was <laughs> Urban Dictionary before Urban Dictionary existed. And you got to love them for it. But it was a very small story. So getting back to the movie and the narrative, there's not a lot here. There's not a lot going on. It's a very small yeah. scale story, but it's told against the backdrop of uh, a brilliantly vibrant, even though it's black and white, uh, you know, 1950s New York City. All the grit and grime and hustle and bustle. You have the, you know, classic vintage 50s wardrobes. You got the, like we said, the spitfire dialogue. You've got some great acting. I think that, yeah. uh, you know, Tony Curtis and, and Burt Lancaster, I think they did a Lancaster. great job. <laughs> I think they did a fantastic job. I think everyone in this, uh, sure. even Agreed. Susan Harrison, who played the younger sister, Susan, she did great. Um, the sets were great. We're going to, uh, I got some things to say about, uh, James Wong Howe, uh, the oh, yeah, cinematographer absolutely. and some of the cinematography that they did was superb considering yeah, what they 100%. had to work with. Everything here was done very skillfully and, um, yeah, but you know, it's not such a large, it's such a small story that it's hard for me to put this in the ranks of other noir films or anything. Um, you know, yeah. it's just about stay away from my, don't date my sister, you know, and that's kind of <laughs> the beginning and end of it. And there's some weird, yeah. obviously, you know, another thing we're going to talk about is good old fashioned 1950s uh, sh- chauvinism <laughs> and uh, <laughs> how women were chattel. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, also, you know, just the, yeah, the, the, the chauvinism, the, uh, uh, a little bit of, you know, twinges of racism. There's like, you know, it's a very nice, you know, it's set in when it's set. And so there's and some it's problematic still made in 1957. Things. Sure. Right. It's going to have for better and worse. It was made in 1957. Let's just put it there's that There's even some <laughs> weird, um, and I found this online to, you know, other people have seen this as well. It's not just me making this up or pulling this out of my ass, but there's some weird, like ancestral vibes going on with Hans oh, absolutely, and Susan, where it's like, don't 100%. date my sister. Because I'm gonna date my sister. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> easy, Brett Lancaster. Yeah. <laughs> and and here's the thing, Ryan, is I think that you're gonna be really interested over the course of this discussion to see where actually a lot of this stuff comes from and why that's okay. there. I was actually yeah. very surprised to find in my research uh, a lot of these different aspects. So we'll get into that. Let's go ahead and dive into the movie proper so sure. that we can really start to get into some of these different qualities. Now, when we open, it's on a cityscape whoa, whoa, in New whoa. York. Whoa, whoa, stop, 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 Jason. Oh, I, man. I, I wow. know. It's Dude. the first time I've screwed it up. God. I'm not, I'm not making you accusations know, here. I'm just saying it's the first yeah, time. Yeah, just going about it all willy-nilly without asking me, <laughs> asking my I'm opinion. Sorry. As your co-host, yeah, no. as your trusty sidekick, as your Ed McMahon to your Johnny Carson, <laughs> where you should begin, wherein I tell you, week after week, at the beginning... Uh, all right, now How you may I proceed. That? No, yeah, no, I'm so glad. Please, by all means, make sure because it wouldn't be the show if we didn't have that. I know. You know this, and I you know that'd be like Johnny Carson just busting out of the curtains without Ed McMahon saying, Here's Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> Him delivering a punchline without Ed McMahon going, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you are correct, Jason. <laughs> you are correct, sir. He did want to bang his sister. 
Ah, yes. Nothing like a little incest to get things going around here. Yes, yes. So now, with that out of the way, I can mention that we open up on a cityscape of New York. Uh, It's about... If it's not magic hour, it's night. We've got a busy newspaper mill. Trucks are being loaded up with all the different papers ready to leave the station. And we get a quick overlay of the title cards playing against uh, what the studios referred to at the time as crime jazz, which really is just a perfect descriptor, right? It's uh, It reminded me of snake jazz from Rick and Morty. But we all know exactly, <laughs> which is my shit, by the way, but we all know exactly what... Crime jazz is. You say crime jazz. Everyone listening right now hears crime jazz in their head when you say crime jazz. Absolutely. So, <laughs> and then from there, we're, we're very quickly introduced to our protagonist, a man by the name of Sidney Falco, who, despite his initial appearances, it would actually turn out, is not doing so hot. And he's a struggling rep. We actually see that right off the bat by the fact that he's got a sign scotch taped to his door of his business saying that he is a <laughs> press that. agent. Yeah. <laughs> and then when he opens it, we also see that he's got a bedroom right in there as well with the door wide open that he sleeps in every night. So uh, again, you know, this guy is uh, not doing super, super well. He's got a secretary, which is actually something to be said for that. But you get the sense that she's also probably does a lot of work for free because there's obviously some sort of attraction there. Kind of intimate that maybe they've, you know, messed around a couple times. But either way, you know, she kind of is. He's almost got like an Eddie Valiant vibe to it I got here. Like uh, from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know, Bob Hoskins uh, private dick where he's just like, you know, just scraping by and rough around the edges and like, you know, washing his clothes in the sink kind of vibes, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of one of those noir hallmarks, right? Like, I don't think you can say this is a full on noir film, but there are certainly noir elements to the film, specifically with regard to the overall aesthetic, maybe more so in the way that it's approached, maybe than the actual words on the page of the script. Right. But regardless, that is sort of a noir trope is this like anti-hero, right? The guy who's down on his luck. Right. It's never like some guy who's on top of the world and he's the best gumshoe in the world. And he's got, you know, zero substance abuse problems and has been long married (laughs) to his great wife. Right. These are not the hallmarks of private eyes or any of these sort of main noir characters over time. Oftentimes it's criminals down on their luck. And this guy's not a criminal down on his luck, but he's also like closer than he would probably want to be. Right. Right. Yeah, he's a grimy dude, and he, you know, yeah. they, they show him right out the gate. Uh, you know, they portray him as someone willing to do anything to get ahead or to make ends meet. Um, yeah, he doesn't really have a lot of scruples, as it were. You you'll see him throughout the film, kind of question himself sometimes, like, "Sure, oh, I'm not that kind of guy." But then, like, literally seconds later, he's like, "All right." <laughs> yeah, we see his his morals are very very flexible relative to what is on the table for old Sydney, and right. we're also now we're everything also has a price with this guy. Absolutely right, and we're also introduced up front to a quality of the film that I think is done very well where there's a lot of allusions to the situation as it already exists, right? So oftentimes, you know, it's that old, what, Shakespeare term, like, and media rest or whatever it is, where we start in the middle of things that are already happening. And so even here on the phone, right, like, 
the secretary is sort of talking to, if not JJ, someone on JJ's side, about this thing that Sydney didn't do. And then he gets on the phone and they're talking about, ah, Sydney, you really you know, botched this up or whatever. And we never actually learn what that thing is. We understand it was something that was sort of beyond his morals because he kind of later on in a later scene, he's talking to JJ and he's like, ah, JJ, I know I didn't do it, but you know, I've never, never stooped that low and tried to do something that bad or whatever. And JJ's like, well, that's the price of, you know, getting in my column or whatever it is. But so there's a lot of that that's introduced and very quickly, Ryan, I would say that there's two things that jump out really initially. And let's mention those real quick. The first is like I mentioned that crime jazz score by yep. a guy named Elmer Bernstein. Now, did you oh, happen yeah. to check out this dude's resume? I totally did. Because as you say, uh, the score stood out. And it's Elmer Bernstein and uh, also Chico Hamilton is a member of yes. the band that appears on screen or the leader of the band that plays on screen. Uh, we could talk about him in a minute. But I absolutely did check out Bernstein's resume and holy shit does this guy right. slap yeah no absolutely man i, I don't mean, want to I steal was... your thunder you could rattle down the list uh, you know i didn't want to no step no on no your toes, i was but... i was i was serving it up for you but i mean just you know the ones that jumped out to me off the bat i mean you're looking at the 10 commandments the magnificent yep. seven to kill a mockingbird he did a bunch of stuff in the 70s and then he did a lot of these like 80s comedies airplane stripes trading places and ghostbusters fucking and then, ghostbusters right, right. And then the funny yeah. thing is, for whatever reason, Animal a lot House? of his work was uncredited as well. And that was what was really interesting. I don't know okay. why so much of it was uncredited, but he did a lot of uncredited work that I'm sure he was paid nicely for. And then he finished out his career in the 90s by hooking up with Scorsese with some of his later 90 movies, including Bringing Out the Dead. So, oh, and the one other thing, dude, this guy wrote the theme from The Great Escape. The, yes. the infamous. Da, 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 da. And I can't yep. sing. I'm tone deaf, but like. If you've seen The Great Escape, you know that theme song. You, you know can hear the it in your head right now. I'm hearing it right now. Uh, yes. <laughs> he did Cape Fear with Scorsese as well. Yeah, dude. This guy, like, I had no idea before I watched this movie who this guy was. Turns out he scored half of my childhood. Yeah. Bananas. Yeah, right. He got his start um, working with Agnes B. DeMille uh, doing okay. the uh, choreography for Oklahoma. And so now, is from that, there, is that person related to Cecil B. DeMille, do you know? There you go. It was the daughter uh, thereof of nice. the Cecil B. DeMille fame. And so, uh, yeah, he worked with Agnes B. DeMille on the choreography for Oklahoma. She referred him to Cecil, who was in the process of doing Ten Commandments. And that's how he got into Ten Commandments. Nice. That was like his first cool. big break. Like, that's yeah. a pretty big break to have. Um, <laughs> right? Working one. with Mr. Charlton Heston. And uh, <laughs> I want <laughs> to just keep talking like that throughout. Yeah, Magnificent Seven. I mean, Animal House. This guy fucking slaps, dude. Um, but anyway, yeah. Birdman of Alcatraz. And, it goes on and on. Yeah. And, and the score was so swanky. So swanky. It was just definitely. like head vibes oozing out of this. And I just love between that and the cinematography and the dialogue, who cares about the rest of this movie? It was so fun. Yeah. So the band in the film is actually the Chico Hamilton quintet. Correct. So uh, they were referred to. Uh, so I actually listened to the commentary track for this film on the Criterion disc. There's a lot of really good information. And the film historian James Naramore, that does the commentary track, describes them as a, quote, hip experimental chamber jazz band that were actually out of California. 
So that was just kind of an interesting wrinkle because the film is very, very New York heavy and they wanted to get yep. as many New York locals in there as possible. But the one exception that they did make is bringing in this band from California because they thought that they had a little bit more of like an innocent vibe that they wanted from the main musician, Steve, because he ends up being one of the only sympathetic characters. It's pretty much him and Susan are the only two redeemable and sympathetic characters in the entire film. And that ends up being, you know, part of my problem with it is, you know, it's the, it's, it's one of these films where it's like, you know, it reminds me of kind of like what the Safdie brothers did with uncut gems. It reminds me of a lot of the work that Neil Labute has done over the years, specifically like your friends and neighbors that we looked at in season one, where it's kind of this just like its general thesis is, hey, these dudes are bad. Let's watch them right. be bad for 90 to 120 minutes. And it's like, man, like, it, I don't know if this is something that hits harder in the 50s because everything's hunky dory and making money. But like, we got so much shit going on these days, dude. And I know how horrible people are. And every day you wake up. And experience how horrible someone else is and some horrible thing they do to squash the little guy for their own thing. Like, you know, I'm learning about a lot of details about this whole, like, you know, Elon Musk Twitter thing and a bunch of shady shit that he pulled. And it's like, how many people lost their jobs so he could fucking liquidate some stock options? Like, it's bullshit, dude. So, you know, like, I get it. And it's one of those things where when when I step back and I observe the film intellectually... It's very appreciable. There is a lot in this film that is worthy of admiration and respect with regards to the technical filmmaking and, you know, the score, the cinematography, the direction, the acting, all of that is pretty much flawless, right? But then you're using it and you could say the same thing about a movie like Uncut Gems. And then in the same respect, you could say that this movie uses it to tell a really ugly story and if that story had more meat on the bone, right? Like that's the one thing I love about the noir is noir goes into these dark places, but there's always a central mystery, right? This compelling MacGuffin, whether it's the Maltese Falcon or any of these things, ticking clock mechanisms, all of these aspects of traditional noir elevate that material and make it compelling. Whereas with this film, it was more just like a character study And it was about characters that I really didn't like. And so that kind of is where my discord with this film is. Yeah, I mean, a couple things. Uh, First off, uh, to the legal counsel of Elon Musk, the views and opinions of Jason Peters do not represent the brand of Esoterica (laughs) Cinema, nor the uh, co-host Ryan Siebold. Thank you very much. Whatever, um, also, fuck Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, I do want to also add that, uh, you're absolutely right, uh, that comes to me with having the small story, is that I'm okay to go into these uh, terrible hives of, villainy like um you know whether it's casablanca or tatooine uh you know the bar in tatooine on star wars and go deal with these um you know wretched scum like han solo and all these you know but then find out they have redeeming qualities and you know they come out of this thing or have these moral quandaries that they make the right decisions in the moment uh, you see that with humphrey bogart films all the time where sure. you know he, he's kind of a a washed up guy or a piece of shit, or he hangs out in these grimy places, drinks whiskey and smokes cigarettes in these seedy bars and hangs around with gangsters. But when he's, when push comes to shove, he's given a decision to make, to make the right to, you know, make a choice and make a a moral choice. And when he makes the right choice and saves the girl or returns the artifact or does these things, then 
you know, then that's the, that's your character arc, right? That's the whole thing of story writing. And I don't feel like any of these people had a character arc at all, except Correct, for Susan yeah. wisening up. And, but all she did was get worse in the sense that she fought fire with fire and learned how to fight these people on their own terms, which we'll get to. But, um, even yeah, that's I mean, debatable, dude. I got to jump in there though, because I, that's I, I do get that at the end, you know, I'm only the, loosely the saying she sort of like walks <laughs> off and has supposedly the power. But the thing is like for, for all but those final seven seconds, she's so consistently relegated to the background of right the, of all of these powerful men, right? So even though she's the sympathetic character, the film keeps pulling her away from right. us. And yeah. so then it's like, we're just back with these fucking awful dudes again, you know? I just meant and, the final and, gotcha moment, you know, where she played the players more or less and got everything, yeah. you know. Got them back and, guess, and got them to kind of turn on each other. She played them like a fiddle. Yeah, she played them and she, she knew did. what she was doing and she got them. She had to kind of sink to their level to do it. So she's almost got a reverse character arc in that regard. But it's not like she had some, you know, big plan, right? Like right, normally right. with these things, right? If it's a more of like a traditional mystery and we find out that like the supposed damsel in distress was getting it on these guys all along, right? We have that like final, you know, three to seven minute sequence where she kind of explains everything, right? And we go back and we see that, oh, this scene that we thought was this was really a chess piece that she put into motion to make this move later, right? Like the the following that we looked at recently actually did a very good job with that. And I think that if they had given her that moment or more of that, or at least given her a larger moment at the end, it might have hit a little bit harder, but as it stands, she just kind of is like, okay, uh, I, I threw some dynamite in your guys' relationship, and now I'm peacing out. And it happens very quickly, you know? Right. And I think that uh, speaks to one of the film's larger issues that I had as well, which is that it felt very rushed. It just felt like we were never – part of that is respectable from the standpoint of it's this lived-in world and the fast-talking dialogue and all of that. But also I felt like we didn't get enough time to really latch on to these people – and give some pathos to our main characters that would have helped us identify with them a little more, given some more screen time to Steve and Susan so we could maybe get a little bit more of their sympathy, right? Like, it needed some balancing out as far as I was concerned there. Your movie skimpy ribs, kid. Too much sauce, not enough meat. <laughs> <laughs> now, we also watch as JJ travels around town, and he's very quickly runs into two of his clients who give him a very public dressing down, but he doesn't really seem too particularly upset because he's trying to get to JJ. And this is where that sort of lived in quality comes in, I think, and plays to the film's benefit, which is there's a lot of talk about JJ before he's finally introduced, which does do a lot to sort of build him up as this giant powerful mythic figure we see right. his image on the side of the trucks we see his powerful standing visage on next to a globe promoting his radio show or tv show there's a lot of talk about him we see his picture in the paper we hear people talking to him on the phone so there's a lot of build-up and that's something that right. the film is really really nicely and uh, i wanted to sort of uh, parlay that into a, a larger discussion about our director, Mr. Alexander McKendrick. And okay. it sounds like maybe you, uh, based on earlier, you either did a little bit of research or you had a I reaction did. to the film. So why don't, you, why don't you tell us a little bit about that first? Well, uh, I found out that he started in 1942. Oh, he was a UK guy. He didn't do a lot here in America. He didn't 
really care for our way of filmmaking once he got here, but uh, he started off making British war propaganda films, newsreels, etc. Um, the same kind that uh, I'm parodying with the Burt Lancaster voice I'm using here. Uh, but the, Lancaster! You know, yeah, fighting overseas. Our boys are fighting the Nazis. Yeah, one of those things. Um, <laughs> Go get them, boys. Yeah, so uh, he did that for a while, and then um, he only made a couple of films, I believe. Uh, and then when he came over yeah. here and got involved in our studio system, uh, namely with this film, um, he kind of butted heads with our way of doing business. Um, he was mostly left alone and given a pretty sizable budget from the government as long as he was making those propaganda films and documentaries and all of that for UK. So then he comes over here and he's told all the things he can't do and all the rules and regulations and has to play by their rules and, um, you know, has a lot of meetings with, um, you know, J.J. Hunsucker kind of guys. And uh, he didn't really care for that very much. So then he pieces out. You could fill in some of these gaps if you know them as someone who's listened to uh, the commentary tracks and so forth but uh yeah he pieced out and then went on to go be a dean at the school i wanted to go to the california institute of the arts in 1969 uh was the dean there for nine years in 78 he just stepped back to being a professor and under his tutelage he taught uh james mangold um yeah. who gave us such bangers as logan and uh the upcoming indiana jones film so uh yeah that was kind of my take on that uh you could Absolutely. fill in the gaps if you know more no, no, that's a that's a pretty good summation of him. And he was kind of a like a hard nosed guy. You know, he was very stubborn, kind of in the mold of one of these like Lars von Trier types who had yes. very specific examples or rather ideas of what filmmaking should be. Right. So he's one of these old school guys who very counterintuitively relative to a, a successful Hollywood career didn't believe in glitz and glamour and larger than life scenes. As a matter of fact, one of the hallmarks of his film that critics often have is the fact that regardless of how big the budgets and the sets are, like he did a film on sea about like Caribbean pirates or whatever his films always feel like these very small character driven movies which is much to the chagrin of producers who spend a lot of money on a big film for these critics to lavish praise on how small it feels. They're like, that's not what we were going for at all. <laughs> well, we were yeah. going for a studio epic here. I just think he was left unchecked by the by you know the UK government when he was over there making his documentaries and war films and stuff like that. He was given a budget and left alone. And then he gets over here and he was questioned at every turn and he just didn't really take... Uh, oversight very well from my my understanding um, yeah he kind of does strike me as like a Lars von Trier or maybe a Werner Herzog or something like that just kind of a uh, uh, lone wolf kind of director that just you got to leave him sure. alone you can't ask why he's trying to get the boat up the mountain he's gonna fucking put the boat on the mountain <laughs> and it's gonna be cool when he does it but just leave him alone you know so I also um, read that he was a uh, insane perfectionist um, yes, he, everything had to be just so, and when you're working on time constraints and budgetary concerns, you don't really get those, yep. uh, freedoms all the time in the studio system and in the studio system, we've talked about this before. Um, it's crazy when you look up how many movies they were making, you know, we all know the big tent poles that are so, you know, that the classics of gone with the wind and, you know, wizard of Oz and all of this stuff. But, uh, dude, Westerns and musicals, they were cranking out so many movies a year, um, and they would contract these people. Okay, you're under contract. You have to make, you know, 30 movies this year or whatever. And so you remember four of them, but they made 26 others that just got swept under the rug that you've never heard of. Sure. Pull up Clark, 
pull up Clark Gable. You know, you might recognize 10 of those movies, but then there's like <laughs> fucking 120 of them that you're like, whoa, what is this? And yeah. um, that, you know, there's a a lot of that going on, I think, around this time. Uh, I heard that that's why he works so well with cinema, uh, with cinematographer James Wong Howe is that uh, he was also a perfectionist and anti-studio yeah. system. Um, and we can get into his history in a little bit if you want. Yeah, absolutely, man. And there is sort of an aspect of McKendrick's work where even though he is stubborn and has all of these very specific ideas of what a film should be, I think that a lot of it works to the film's benefit, but there are some drawbacks. So one of the things that I noticed, for example, is his blocking is spectacular, man. And it apparently... Is. He he worked the hell out of his actors to do that. So there's a shot where JJ comes into the room and he's talking to Sydney and his sister. It's like that first whole conversation. And they were saying that there was legitimately over 30 total marks that the actors had to hit over the course of this yep. one shot. And so that's just a ton, a ton of rehearsal. And that's definitely like an all day thing. But when you watch the film, it provides for some wonderful, wonderful shots. You know, there's a lot of subtle camera movements where it'll be in one position and the actors are staged a certain way. And then the camera will move subtly to the right, which will, you know, open up some space between these two actors on the right. And then all of a sudden he'll have the background character cross and put his head in that frame to fill it in. And there's a very sort of respectable synchronicity of movement between the blocking and the characters and the camera yes. work. And that's all a direct result of McKendrick. And so I thought that well, when the film Wong succeeded, Howe. it was due to that. Absolutely. And Wong Howe to a degree. But they're, and they're sort of synthesis coming together to make those shots happen. Well, because the the reason for that blocking, Jason, and I'll, I'll, everything you said is correct, and I agree with you 150%, and that's one of the things I love about this movie. Um, but the blocking is also directly related to not only the camera movement, but the lighting. Um, the, the way that you'd see Tony Curtis start in one uh, form of lighting and end his rants or dialogue or diatribe that he's on in another lighting scheme altogether, the only way to do that is with blocking. And and then when you add camera movement in there as well, um, like there would be, a sh you know, shadows over their faces from their fedoras. Um, and mm -hmm. that would just be, you know, they would have to hit this mark and now they're in total light, have your head up. Okay. Now you're well, well lit. It's a happy time. And then you're going to go over here in your half side shadow with some negative fill, your side lit. And then when you get over here to her, now you're the villain and you're totally engulfed in shadows and you have deep sunken eyeballs and you're top lit and all of that. And all of that is motivated in the wide shot. It's shown where those lights are coming from, where the lighting sources are, but also the blocking and, and how you have to hit your marks to make all that happen. Um, yeah, it's incredible, dude. This is a dance. It's a, uh, you know, an, an incredible noir piece from cinematography, lighting, blocking, uh, and then to deliver your lines like that and get those, get the performances out of the actors as they're not, you know, so that they're not so focused on the technical, but also the emotional beats as well. Um, it, all of that lent itself to make this film feel going back to what I was saying at the beginning of this discussion, you know, way bigger than it probably should have felt because the story itself or the plot, there was very little there. So, um, yeah, it was just like, felt like you were involved in something. And then, and then add to that, the, the spitfire dialogue too. And it's like, dude, you, I mean, I was glued to the screen. My eyeballs were bleeding. I'm just like, holy crap, dude, there's so much going on. And then like the spitfire witty dialogue, which we can get into here shortly, the way they're delivering these lines 
It, they're not just throwaway. Like they're progressing the plot. They're giving you information. So you have to try to extrapolate uh, key plot points on who they're talking about, what happened. They're referencing a lot of things that had happened before or off camera or to other people you never meet. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's all moving at a very rapid pace. So buckle up and you just got to go for the ride and, and drink it in. You, but, but you do have to pay attention because they're, you know, it's not one of those things where you could just let it wash over you and you kind of get the gist, uh, because they are dropping these big plot nuggets, um, in the midst of all these things happening. So, uh, it was a Absolutely. lot, you know, Wong Hao, uh, just real quick, uh, and then we can move on from this topic, but, uh, you know, he got to start with DeMille as well in his silent film era. Um, I know you touched on DeMille, uh, quite a bit in your, uh, short form content about the sign of the cross yes, and sir. how he got, you know, started before, uh, in silent films. Well, that was all Wong Hao doing a lot of that stuff yeah. for him. And, um, he was blacklisted post-war as a commie sympathizer. Um, and then, uh, linked up later in his career after doing a few films uh, like this uh, with Bernstein, Elmer Bernstein again, and uh, won an Oscar for HUD. Both of them worked on HUD with Paul Newman. So uh, he eventually taught at UCLA and taught uh, Dean Cundey, who went on to go shoot things like Jurassic Park, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future series, um, all of John Carpenter's early work and all of that. So uh, yeah, little Hollywood royalty there with this guy. Yeah, absolutely. The guy's got over 100 credits to his name. Largely, those are silent films. He did a lot to advance the whole nature of cinematography sort of along the way. But again, you know, he's he's an old school guy with a lot of old silent films and the beginning of talkies. So, you know, now 100 years later, you know, people like him tend to be a little forgotten, right? Like it's hard to ask people to go watch films from a hundred years ago. We do because we're cinema nerds, but most people aren't. So right. eh, probably someone that isn't really as remembered as he should be based on his reputation. Cause you talk to cinematographers and photographers and, and they give this guy all the credit in the world. Like he's legendary. And you see that in this film, this film looks incredible. First of all, I will say once again, we've talked about this before. Where did you watch this film? By the way, Ryan, Amazon, unfortunately, was it in, okay? But was it was it a high def stream or or a standard def? It was a high def stream. I think you okay. never really know with Amazon. It all just depends on how they want to give it to you. Um, that's why I prefer Apple because Apple is always. I've found Apple to be worth the three ninety nine rental. Typically, um, this was free sure. on Amazon Prime, and oh, not okay. knowing how good of a movie this was going to be, I just kind of rolled with it and said, "Well, let's just watch this." You know, um, in hindsight, I wished I would have paid the extra four bucks on Apple. Um, when Apple tells me it's HD, I know for a fact it's, you know, usually crisp and clean and no caffeine. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, Amazon is, you know, they'll say you, you want this ultra high def stream? And then it comes through and it's like, yo, your bandwidth is too low. That sucks. And then it comes out all choppy and it's like, <laughs> fuck you, dude. <laughs> My bandwidth is fine. <laughs> you I also like how Amazon sounds like the Carl's Jr. guy. Real <laughs> Amazon Prime is the Sydney Falco of streaming <laughs> services where they just like sell me a bill of goods and promise me all this. And then I get it. And it's like, damn it, Sydney, you got me again. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Well, I watched this film on the Criterion Blu-ray and just shout out Humble to brag. the restoration DVDs. <laughs> Physical media for the win. I say it every episode. And no, dude, shout out to those guys, man. These, these restoration experts, dude, I don't know what the hell they're doing, man. But these films look so amazing. This film looked like it was shot in the last few years. It was crystal clear. It was perfect. And you also, it was, it allowed you to appreciate 
how modern the sense of filmmaking was. I mean, sure. this is the type of filmmaking that we're getting from Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino. It's not just this shot reverse shot stuff. There is a lot of staging. You you put it perfectly. It's a dance. It is an absolute waltz of camera work and blocking and acting and lighting and all of this. And it works so well. And so again, like so much of me wishes that all of this was in the context of a story I could appreciate better because I'm sitting here sucking this film's dick and I'm not going (laughs) to give it a great rating when all is said and done. I'm just not because like everything about this film that is so wonderful is from a technical point of view. And for as much as I appreciate that, there's an emotive quality that a film has to have as far as I'm concerned. And look, I've given five stars to Dead Alive. So this is certainly like, you know, film. And I've also given five stars to Harakiri, right? Film can be on either end of the emotional spectrum. It just needs to deliver on what it is and, you know, deliver a certain level of experience. And again, I thought this was a smart film. I thought that it had a lot to say. It was incisive. It was technically proficient, but I just didn't care for these characters. And ultimately to your point, there's two storylines in this entire movie. Don't bang my sister from JJ Hunsucker. And please put me in your paper, JJ from Sydney. That's the entire movie. That's the entire from movie. beginning to end. There is nothing else going on in the 97 minutes that we're here. And that's what's so unfortunate about this. Yeah. Yeah. And then you could argue uh, Steve Dallas, the guitar player, musician or whatever, jazz musician is just and Susan Harrison are just caught in the middle and they're just plot devices, more or less. They don't have anything to do other than give these other two characters or, you know, uh, the 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 Sidney Falco and J.J. Hunsecker characters ammunition to kind of and pawns to move about this chessboard that they're working with here against each other and with each other so um i agree with you to a point this is the age-old breaking bad conversation because i always shit all over breaking bad for the same exact argument who am i rooting for i hate all these people they're all despicable people and then people come back to me with yeah, but they're doing fun things in a fun way and it's fun to watch and it's crazy what they do and the hijinks and all of that. And I'm like, yeah, but none of that matters if I don't like if I'm not rooting for anybody and they're it's just like it takes me out of the 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 picture. And sure. this was but kind I will of say that for in breaking reverse bad, for me. Though, yeah, one thing I will just say real quick though is the thing about breaking bad is it has oh, the go. cat No, I'm not going to I'm not going to shit all over your opinion or anything. I'm just going to say that what differentiates that experience, because I do agree with you. And there are people that don't like the film for that reason. And I totally get it for the same reasons that I don't like this film or that show rather. But the one thing that I'll say is different that I'm sort of alluding to is the fact that Breaking Bad has a cat and mouse element to it, right? Because while Hank is trying to build his meth empire, you have the Hank character who is a cop and he's actively investigating this entire scenario and has no idea that his brother-in-law is this giant kingpin that he's chasing that he doesn't know the identity of. And so that cat and mouse aspect of a traditional police thriller gives people that aren't into the characters something to hang on. And that's what this film was missing that I'm talking about. It doesn't have that other layer of mystery or something that I can latch onto and say, well, these characters suck, but I'm really into what's going on over here. So to your point though, like, and getting back to this film, it doesn't really have a MacGuffin. It doesn't really have a ticking clock. 
there's nothing other than, you know, powerful men doing powerful men things and trying to Correct. toy with the world. Um, so there's not really any pressure or they're not after anything other than there's just no stakes really. I mean, Correct. I suppose yeah. they're supposed to be with Sydney getting his stuff in the paper, but you don't really get that when you watch the film. It doesn't really focus. on. It that. sets that up, but it doesn't really resolve it because it shows yeah. him as a man in need. And so, but then once the, the train leaves the station and we're all, you know, into this, the, the meat of this film, like you said, this, that, that all kind of gets left by the wayside because so much attention gets put on uh, the interaction of all of this and these characters all in a room together, you know, and all the fast paced dialogue and the blocking and the lighting and the camera movement that, you know, the, those stakes get left behind in, you know, way de- early in the first act, I feel like. Yeah, um, Absolutely. And you never really come back to him because by the time you get to the third act and it resolves, Sidney Falco gets or achieves what he wants until the rug gets directly pulled out from under him and then he, you know, he loses everything. But that yeah. all happens at such a breakneck pace that the um the resolve of it all never really landed. And we'll get to that in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Now, getting back to the film, inside the restaurant. JJ's dozens of feet away, but rather than go right up to him, Sydney actually goes to a payphone in the restaurant and calls in to the rest to JJ, who has a phone at his table, to ask if he can meet him. And JJ's like, no, go fuck yourself. You didn't do the thing for me. Want nothing to do with you. That's not going to stop Sydney, who is just kind of like a mosquito, the way he's constantly buzzing around JJ, trying to get his information in his paper and do right by him. And again, you know, this is one of those things the film does well. It's that constant buildup, right? We're almost going to get to meet JJ. He's been built up. And then one last time, we're going to remove him from the situation and, you know, just hear him on the phone before we're finally introduced to him. And I think that the introduction of JJ Hunsucker is arguably the film's best scene. It's I had so never dope. seen. It's such a good scene. And, and so funny thing, I had never, I guess, I guess I have to preface a, Cinematic confession that I have never seen either a Burt Lancaster or Tony Curtis film. This was my first experience to both of them. So I was not familiar with their acting. I found Tony Curtis to be very good, but short of great. But I thought that Burt Lancaster absolutely crushed. And apparently in doing some research, he really was a very intimidating man, you know, physically large, very domineering. And so he wasn't even like the first choice for that role but he was (laughs) he also ended up producing the film with these two other guys so he kind of got to uh make that last minute decision and uh not have anybody (laughs) claim otherwise so i do have a clip uh that i'm going to play from here and specifically what the scene does so well is we're just seeing jj run the table quite literally in this respect because they're all sitting around a table but he's he calls him like he sees it he sees the situations for what's going on and he likes to cut people down to size to make sure that he is above them specifically sydney as we hear in this exchange are you an actor mr falco that's what i was thinking are you mr falco well how did you guess it miss james he's so pretty that's how mr falco let it be said at once there's a man of 40 faces, not one. None too pretty. And all deceptive. You see that grin? That's the, uh... That's the charming street urchin face. It's part of his helpless act. He throws himself upon your mercy. He's got a half dozen faces for the ladies. But the one I like, the really cute one, is the quick, dependable chap. Nothing he won't do for you in a pinch. 
so he says. Mr. Falco, whom I did not invite to sit at this table tonight, is a hungry press agent and fully up to all the tricks of his very slimy trade. Match me, Sidney. Not right this minute, J.J. Now, Ryan, there is a very interesting story about this scene that I'm going to tell you and our listeners. You can let me know if this, when I'm done, you can let me know if this came up in your research or not. But this scene in particular was a very, very contentious scene, specifically between Burt Lancaster and Alexander McKendrick. So Alexander McKendrick knew that for this scene, it was important that the Sidney Falco character have a seat at the table, quite literally. And this had a lot to do with the way that he wanted to cover the blocking with regards to sort of having everybody on a similar plane while elevating J.J. through his actions and such. So the way that Alexander had blocked the scene is J.J.'s sitting there at the end, Sydney comes in, J.J. moves over, Sydney sits down, and then the entire scene is takes place with everybody seated around the booth. Burt Lancaster pushed back on this and pushed back hard because it was his viewpoint, which is actually, in terms of character, I would argue, a fair insistence. He oh, argued yeah. that J.J. would never move over for Sydney, Right. And that's absolutely 100% true. He would I never agree. move over for Sydney. He makes him sit behind him and find his own seat. Like, I'm not moving, bitch. Yeah. You well, pull up a chair and watch what how daddy does it. Like, Because <laughs> <laughs> so he's engaged in a conversation. Like, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but yeah, he was. No, please go. He, he was talking to the, what was it, the senator? And, yes, the senator um, with his sort of like floozy girlfriend that's supposedly well, the a other press agent. agent. Yeah, he was having a meeting. And um, yeah, he was interrupted. So if you want to get in line, you want my time. And that's kind of how we yeah. took it. And so and he, it, it sets up the, the power struggle and the, the, the power roles of the film right away because we never see the senator again. We never see any of these characters again other than, uh, you know, Lancaster and uh, Tony Curtis. So um, yeah. you need to, the, the whole device, the whole reason this scene exists is to establish that in my view and to establish uh, Hudsecker as, you know, the, the domineering role over all of this and show Tony, sure. Cur- Tony Curtis. It's kind of like the Ike and Spike role, right? So, you know, you got Tony Curtis, like, where are we going? Hey, Spike, where are we going, hey, Spike, You want to do this? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and uh, you know, oh, that was a bad idea, Spike. Uh, You're right. That was a horrible idea. Hudsecker isn't bothered. Um, so, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I now, agree here's the funny thing about with that decision. Yeah. But what you might not agree with is the way that Mr. Lancaster chose to respond to this insistence. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, uh, Alexander McKendrick was like, no, Bert, we have to have him sitting down the way we're covering this. And Lancaster apparently had a bit of a temper on him. Just, you know, wholeheartedly, he was a very intimidating man because everyone was worried that he was very combustible, could blow up at any moment. And here he did. So Mackenzie insisted that this guy sit down and he move over for him. And Lancaster straight gets up, flips the table, knocks all of the dishes off and goes on just a screaming rampage with Alexander about not committing to the character. And Alexander Mackenzie was a Scottish dude. McKendrick. uh, McKendrick was a Scottish dude. And as we would learn from dudes like uh, uh, Sean, uh, Jesus, Sean Connery, 
uh, the, Scotsmen can be very stubborn guys. And so, and they're also very like, you know, men got to hold their own. So he wasn't taking Lancaster shit, even though Lancaster had several inches and pounds on him. So he stepped up and jawed and they went back and forth and it was really, really messy. And then basically, you know, once mommy and daddy stopped fighting, Tony Curtis came to them and said, what if I just <laughs> grab a chair and sit behind? And they were like, oh, yeah, man. okay, I guess we can live with that. And went their separate ways. <laughs> Sucks we don't have TMZ. So. We didn't have TMZ back then. We couldn't uh, leak, leak that, that behind the scenes footage. I would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> yeah, so not always the easiest shoot. There was a lot of domineering personalities, specifically with the three producers, Hecht Lancaster and Hill, as well as uh, Alexander McKendrick. So, yep, got a little a little dicey at times. Now I we wish finally we seen learned. That. Yeah, right. Yeah. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Well, hello, folks. It's famed jazz composer and legendary alcoholic Paul Whiteman here. As you know, we're several years into that noble experiment known as prohibition. And when I find I'm getting the shakes particularly bad, I turn to the one refreshment that gets me through these wonderful, godforsaken times. Coca-Cola. In the spirit of prohibition, Coca-Cola has gone back to the original recipe. That's right, it's now chock full of that magical ingredient we all know and love, cocaine. And let me tell you, every time I take a sip of Coca-Cola original recipe, it's like I woke up on the back of an alabaster sand crab that hopped on the 319 to Houston. I'm telling you, this stuff's the bee's knees. It's the cat's pajamas. Why, it's the elephant's hoop skirt even. I've got to tell more people about this wonderful elixir. You there, the gentleman eating a sandwich. Who, me? Yes, my good sir. What have you to say of the nature of prohibition? Prohibition? I think it's a bunch of government bull. Understandable, sir, but please don't fret. I come to you with the gift of original recipe Coca-Cola. Original recipe? They put the blowback in? Here, you tell me. Well, okay. I suppose I can give it a shot. But if you're lying, buddy. Why, buddy? You're not fooling. You're not fooling at all. This stuff's as powerful as a Cincinnati locomotive breathing raw fire into a dragon's belly. Whole hog! It's the dog xylophone. It's the aardvark's pumpernickel. The shrew's news. The pelican's astrolab, even. Well, come on. We've got to tell more people about this. <laughs> Excuse me, pretty lady. Who, me? Why, however can I help you? Are you familiar with Coca-Cola? Of course. And what if I told you they went back to the original recipe? Original recipe? Like, with cocaine? Isn't that outlawed on account of prohibition? No, ma'am, just the booze. Here, have some. Well, <laughs> I really shouldn't, but... Why, that's incredible. It's got all the flavor of a Montana sport coat, mixed with the get-up-and-go of a Tijuana Hootenanny. It's the Devil's Horseshoe. The Orangutan's Corn Cob. The Butcher's Peridium. The Platypus's Eardrum. Coca-Cola. We put the cocaine back in. And now back to the show. Now we finally learn explicitly 
through this kind of exchange, though, that J.J. is this newspaper baron who can make or break people in his gossip columns, and that Sidney is, in fact, a press agent who's trying to get his client's placement within J.J.'s paper. And, again, this is sort of one of those aspects where I would argue the commitment to realism it does sort of affect our ability to sympathize with the characters because the interesting thing to remember, one thing that the commentary track pointed out at the time, this movie is released. The general public does not understand at all the nature of journalism and celebrity and all of this. Right. And so because the film went out of its way to not introduce all of these concepts to the audience right up front, a lot of people were confused. They had no idea what the Sydney guy was. Is he a cop? What the hell's going on? Why is he so <laughs> obsessed with this JJ guy? Because the film didn't bother to explain any of this. Now here, you know, cut to 2022, all of this is, you know, everyone's very familiar with TMZ culture and journalism and paparazzos. We all understand this world. And yellow journalism and William Randolph yeah. Hearst and, you know, Citizen Kane and all these things, you know, that are in our lexicon. Yeah. yeah. We, we, don't, we don't need it explained to us, but they, you could argue that audiences at the time did need it explained to them because this sure. film, its legacy was worth more than when it came out. And what I mean by that is the film lost, I believe, $2 million when it's in its theatrical run. Oh, wow. When all was said and done. So its legacy lived on. You have people like Criterion and other filmmakers showing a lot of respect to Alexander McKendrick. Its legacy, you know, it found its footing later on, but this lost money theatrically. And part of that is for these different things that we're talking about. People didn't understand it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I do kind of want to talk to you about the nature of acting versus character, right? Because... We've talked touched on it a little bit, but very specifically, again, Tony Curtis, very good. Burt Lancaster, phenomenal. Uh, the Susan actress, very good. Which, by the way, she is an 18-year-old actress, and this was her very I first know. role. And yep. so to go up against a Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, honestly, a lot of that fear and intimidation was probably a little real. You know, that probably yeah. – She was very intimidated as this was her first job with a lot of very powerful people. And I think that it plays really well. And then to your point as well, the Curtis is the Ike and Spike. It's such a perfect metaphor because to me, like, again, I think that if you were to use a different metaphor, like he's this mosquito, he's just constantly buzzing around JJ. Like, hey, JJ, get this in. Hey, JJ, what do you need? Hey, JJ, can you not be mad at me? And there's even a point where they get out of the restaurant later and they're walking down the street and you literally see Tony Curtis circling him, like trying to get his attention as he's talking to him. Sure. And so the acting, right, bringing these characters to life is Really, really strong. Oh, one other thing that I will mention is, again, in the Sign of the Cross episode that I did for our five-minute review, I talk about the Hayes Code. And that was basically a certain censorship that was in place for, let's say, 20 years, not exact, um, for talkie films. And this film was made when the Hayes Code was in effect. So one of the aspects of the Hayes Code is that you couldn't have people use profanity. Profanity was not allowed in film at the time that this movie was made. And the writers really wanted profanity in the film and they couldn't. And so one of the devices that they employed is they wanted to have a lot of what they called violent language. And so when you see a lot of the 
veiled threats that people make that is a specific response to the filmmaking environment at the time that prevented them from using profanity. And so they upped it by making these guys use what they called brutal and vicious language, which I thought was a very interesting touch. Interesting. So is that some of these creative metaphors and the Spitfire witty uh, language and stuff that we, that we were referring to? Yeah, absolutely. And then it also extends to some other decisions that they made. So a little bit later, there is a scene where, Sydney is trying to get information, I believe, either from or into a rival newspaper man, right? It's the old guy at the restaurant, and he ends up calling up the cigarette girl saying, hey, can I come over? And she thinks that, you know, he kind of wants to hook up with her, and then he shows up with this guy, and then she realizes that she's basically being prostituted for information. So in the original draft, that scene, it plays very differently where this girl is kind of accustomed to doing things like that. Uh, and and I think it actually plays against uh, the pathos of the character, but she doesn't really have a problem with it. And it's the newspaper guy who's kind of uncomfortable with this whole thing. But Sydney's playing him to sort of coerce him into sleeping with the girl so that he can get what he wants. Right. Whereas okay. in the current version, it's more of like he's this lecherous guy and he's trying to convince the cigarette girl to sleep with him. And that in and of itself was also a direct response to the Hayes code, which saw the initial scene and the way it played out. And the censors said, Hey, that's not appropriate. You can't have a girl who's totally down to basically be a prostitute. That's not morals. That's not ethics. So you need to change this scene so that she is devastated and she is gutted. And all of this is against her will. And she feels very bad about doing this. And we feel bad for her. Yeah. So you can't have these... a woman have control over her own sexuality. You have to have the man straight up take it from her. <laughs> oh, wow. He's code. Yeah. He's code. Exactly. Oh, so there's a lot of Jesus. very interesting decisions that were made specifically because of the environment at the time relative to what you could and couldn't do. And interestingly as well, this is right about the time that people are going to start to push back against this. So the Hayes Code would probably only be in effect for another five to six years after this. And sure. part part of it was even the fact that they would go into some of this subject matter to begin with at all. And uh, we'll delve into the specifics of that here. in Yeah, just because, well. you know, we're getting into, so we're, 1957 is when this movie comes out. And mm-hmm. so you're absolutely right. It wasn't much longer and you're turning into the mid sixties. And that's when we start to just get into the auteur movement and the hippie movement and anti-Vietnam era and civil rights. So people started to question these things and buck the system a little bit and say, why, why is it like this? You know? And so, uh, yeah, this is kind of, you're absolutely right. This is on the tail end of those modalities and mentality, you know, ways of thinking. So anyway. absolutely. Yeah. From there, as far as the film is concerned, we get into what I suppose would be the film's central storyline if it had one. And that's basically that J.J. Hunsucker is upset that this jazz musician named Steve, who's a very clean cut and good kid from what we can tell, has the gall to see his sister and have her fall in love with him. And that opens up what's going to be a central theme of this film as well, which is that J.J. Hunsucker has Wants a to fuck very his strong... <laughs> I was going to say has a very strong physical attraction to his sister, but yes, he does want to fuck his sister, and it's a very uncomfortable aspect of this movie. Ryan, why is it that several movies that we have reviewed on this program have delved into these, like... 
desirous, incestuous relationships of powerful men with their like siblings and daughters. Like remember a cure for wellness? That was the whole yeah. point of a cure for wellness is the guy wanted to have this pure bloodline and bang his daughter and make like, it's like, why? Why is this so consistently explored in these films? We don't need as many films about this. Is it nepotism? I don't I, I mean, I got nothing other than. I, I think it is. I think ego? that's the point. I feel like it's like, yeah, these people are so narcissistic that they can only reproduce with like themselves, right, or cl- as close to it as possible. But I feel like maybe this is a trope that we can say, okay, we've explored it enough. Let's move on. But now, Ryan, this does lead us into one of the film's more interesting aspects that I didn't realize until right away, until through my research. Do you know? Anything about the J.J. Hunsucker character and the fact that he is modeled after a real-life person? I do not. Okay, I did not either. Let's take a little trip down memory lane uh, back to the, <laughs> the early years, 20s. years, 1957. <laughs> <laughs> right? Now, by the way, uh, Hunsucker is so upset at the jazz musician that the MacGuffin, if you will, is that he tasks Sidney with basically planting marijuana on him. And if he can't do that, at least planting a story in the papers about the fact that this jazz musician, Steve, is a marijuana-smoking communist sympathizer hippie. Right. And he wants to destroy him so that in the court of public opinion, he is exiled and he leaves and he does not end up banging and marrying his sister. Now, the character of J.J. Hunsucker is in fact modeled after a real-life person. This person's name is Walter Winchell. And the reason that he is important is because he was basically the original, what is it, uh, Harvey Levenstein, TMZ? Is that his name? Okay. Do you you remember if that's the guy's name or not? Because it's not Harvey Weinstein, but it's something similar. It's not. Fair. Okay, I, I believe it's Harvey Levenstein. Let's just go with that, right? Either way, this guy basically invented, if not supremely popularized, the gossip column. Okay. So up until Walter Winchell got in the game, newspapers were literally just news to the standpoint of if you looked at them, they were walls of text, just blocks of text, very dryly written, no pictures. Maybe These the are occasional that illustration, okay? This Period. is how newspapers are at the time in the 20s. Sure. Now, from there, these new sort of alternate papers start to come out called tabloids. And tabloids are different because they have a ton of pictures and they typically engage in sensationalistic headlines. So along with this, this guy Walter Winchell was like, hey, there is an appetite for celebrity gossip. And we are leaving that on the table by not putting this stuff out there. Furthermore, why does everything have to read like stereo instructions? Even though I don't believe that stereos at the time. But why is everything so technical <laughs> and dry, right? Like, yeah. why can't we infuse some color into this language? And so he was basically the first guy to say, hey, why does journalism have to have integrity? Why can't we start hitting these people up with gossip columns and sensationalist headlines? And cut to several years later, this guy, Walter Winchell, was his gossip column was so popular that he had a readership of 10 million that would later amass to 40 million at its highest point. 
Jeez. And so much in the same way that J.J. Hunsucker can make or break an artist by simply mentioning them in his gossip column because it reaches that many people, that's what this guy Walter Winchell is. Now, you ask yourself, I ask myself, why, when you're making a film like this, would you spend all this time having a protagonist who is in love with and clearly wants to bang his sister? Well, the answer to that would be is because it's a little bit easier to stomach than the real story where Walter Winchell wanted to bang his daughter and was obsessed with his own daughter to the degree that J.J. Hunsucker is with his sister. And they wanted this to be an expose on Walter Winchell specifically and this is them pushing back against the Hayes Code. Uh, five years prior, they wouldn't have been allowed to because the Hayes Code was still in full effect. And Walter Winchell actually was a little bit more powerful. At the time this film came out, he was starting to lose some of his power. And we'll go into that specifically. But what I did want to mention is the whole thing about Steve and J.J. Hunsucker trying to bury him in the papers for having the gall to want his bang his sister – That really happened, actually. Now, the real story, again, involves his daughter, and his daughter actually fell in love with this Broadway hustler, this guy who was just skeezy, a supposed producer, actor, but never actually did anything, you know, presented himself as having all of this money, was flat broke all the time, right? But either way, so this is like... This is Walter Winchell's like worst case scenario, right? The absolute worst person (laughs) that his daughter could fall in love with. And I mean, look, with everything that's going on, this guy clearly had it coming, right? So at the time, Walter Winchell was so powerful that he had developed a relationship with a number of political, politically influential people. The first of which was FDR. We'll get to that in a second. The other of which, (laughs) yes. This is turning into some crazy expose. Bananas, carry on. The other of which is a man named J. Edgar Hoover. Okay. wow. Leader of the FBI and Justice Department at the time. So Walter Winchell and J. Edgar Hoover are homies, partly because Walter Winchell is a mouthpiece for the government at the time and is saying many positive things about them to help public influence and to help the, 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 the public opinion of what FDR and Hoover and all of them were doing at the time. So he was like, Hoover, this guy, William Kahn is the guy's name. I need you to bury this guy. What do you got for me? And so Hoover did some digging and found out that there was two years of this guy's life that he had failed to submit tax returns for. Oh, okay? wow. <laughs> now, it wasn't because he made so much money that he was trying to hide his income. It was that he made so little money that he thought it was foolish to even file anything. We are talking about $4,000 of unreported income across two years. $2,000 a year for two years. William Kahn says not even worth submitting taxes. Hoover does some digging, finds out that he never filed his taxes, labels him a tax cheat, and instead of coming up with a simple payment plan, 
throws the book at William Kahn and results in an 18-month federal prison sentence with no time off for good behavior. And after the 18 months was up, he was released and fled to Israel and has not been back to the States since or was never before he passed. Wow. Yeah, that's how vindictive this guy was and how unhealthy this obsession with his daughter was. It's insane. Another really interesting wrinkle... Walter Winchell has one rival gossip columnist, and he would be his rival for almost his entire career. And it was actually a gossip columnist that outright stole Walter Winchell's style. And it's a gentleman by the name of Ed Sullivan. Oh, wow. And so Ed Sullivan would publish anything that Walter Winchell would not because of the relationships that Walter Winchell had and the fact that the information would be damaging to the people that he was trying to protect. And as a matter of fact, when towards the end of his career, Winchell himself would get involved in some controversies, like namely that he had an unhealthy obsession with his daughter. Guess who was <laughs> right? Guess who was out there trumpeting that message as loud as anyone would listen? Mr. Ed Sullivan. How nuts yeah. is that? Got a very good show for you tonight. Very good show. Yes. Uh, Walter Winchell bangs his daughter on my show. Yes, we had the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of like really, really uh, sort oh, of, you know, Lord. interesting tendrils about this film. From there, that's where we really see this whole thing about, again, you know, going back to the fact that J.J. Hunsucker is really trying to get this story out to bury this Steve guy so that he can get the hell away. And he actually is able to get the story out there about Steve smoking weed and being a commie. And Susan's very dismayed. And we're kind of getting to the end of the film here, too. I know it sounds like there's not a lot of meat on this bone from the narrative standpoint. It's because there's not. I could sum up the plot in, like, five seconds. Like, it's a a real simple thing, just layered in all this witty dialogue and all these twists and turns and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, if we're just going to talk about the... The, the plot of the film, yeah, you can get through it very quick. You're absolutely right. It's, um, yeah, it's a setup and a takedown and then a swippity swap and flippity do, and then you get to the end. Yeah, and then we find out, again, that that information was published. Susan's dismayed by this, right? And so she actually calls Sydney and says that she's basically going to kill herself. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, he goes to the apartment where she is, not really taking her too seriously until he kind of realizes that she is serious. And at one point, she even does try to throw herself off the balcony. He physically stops her, you know, drags her inside, throws her on the bed. Of course, that's the moment when JJ comes home and he's infuriated by the fact that, A, they've obviously been sort of physically close, even though they obviously didn't have sex or anything like that but just you know you touching my girl type of thing all right they're in the bedroom and then also the fact that he very quickly realizes that like yeah she did try to kill herself and you know again he's obsessed with her so he doesn't the last thing he wants is her gone he wants the exact opposite and now ryan i guess before we actually fully wrap this up there's really a, a very large part of this film that we haven't talked about and i know you've made you've made reference to it several times as being your favorite part of this movie but that's the script right? From a gentleman named Ernest Lehman. And he obviously worked with another guy by the name of Clifford Odets. And from what I understand, Lehman did a lot of like the first draft writing and Odets was the guy who really just did a lot of the rewriting and rewriting. Apparently he did like, apparently there is like 14 different drafts submitted of that final scene with Susan because he just was like, he kept second guessing whether she should kill herself, whether she shouldn't, how much power she should have. 
Should she sneak out while the other guys are talking because they don't consider her and play into that? Should she have, like, the big stand-up-and-defend-herself-fuck-you moment, right? He, he went through so many different versions of it, this Odette's, uh, before he really settled on the version that we got. And the it was interesting because we have another case, like so many other films that we've looked here, where Ernest Lehman adapted his own novella. It was published through a magazine and a series of chapters, and he himself worked as a press agent before he was a screenwriter. So that's where he got a lot of his information. And a matter of fact, apparently the Sidney Falco character was based on a real-life gentleman. I, I don't recall his name, but it was to the point that Lehman had to publicly deny that it was a reference to this real-life press agent. But the agent was like, that's fucking me. I don't buy it. We're never talking again. And he had to, like, go back and apologize a couple years later and be like, yeah, it actually really was you. Like, I tried to say it wasn't, (laughs) but... (laughs) And I guess eventually buried Yeah, because you're telling me this story about all these characters and people based on real-life folks, and then you look at the writers, Layman and Odets, and it's like, what did these guys do to these guys? Like, how did... Like, what, what vendetta did Lehman and, and Odette have against, you know, uh, all the people you just mentioned? And how did they find out this information? Or was it public knowledge in a smear campaign by Ed Sullivan, maybe, or whatnot, about how this uh, Winchell guy or whatever um, was trying to sleep with his daughter or was sleeping with his daughter? Like, th- that's all pretty seedy stuff, especially for 1957. Yeah, so it's... Totally. It, it's... um. Little, little odd that he would have access to that level of information, and, and definitely want to write a whole movie about it. Had uh, to have the balls, and then to have Hollywood look at it and be like, and print, you know, and push this forward. Uh, definitely interesting, but um, yeah, I mean, it checks out. You know, the odd thing about all of this is that the jazz musician was the cleanest one out of all of them. He, yeah, you know, was a totally upstanding dude. Had a you know a uh, good career ahead of him. He was on the uptick. Um, you know, had an honest love for the the woman, it seemed, uh, the sister. And um, there was no reason to break this up if it wasn't for uh Hudsecker's um Hunsecker's uh, you know, supposed romance or infatuation with his own sister. So um yeah, it's this is an odd one, man, but you know, the layers of uh Spitfire dialogue definitely that's the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine of all of this go down. <laughs> um, I, I have in my notes here, um, uh, never has uh, chauvinistic behavior and misogyny sound so beautiful. Like <laughs> <laughs> the way that they consistently berate each other, berate women, all of this stuff. It's a power struggle of words. And um, it's, you know, it's definitely beautiful to listen to. Um, but then when you break down some of the stuff that they're saying and some of the ways they're using these uh, phrases and stuff is like a little cringe, but uh, like yeah, you were saying, definitely. the way that Sidney uh, Falco's character, when you were saying earlier, uh, trying to convince the the cigarette girl to have sex with that man to get you know information and get the story and all of that uh, to put to advance his own career for his own devices, so he was prostituting this woman. And dude, again, you know, you want to talk about another sympathetic character? That cigarette girl was probably the one I felt for, aside from. Uh, uh, the musician, she would be the other one, you know, and in that yeah. scene specifically, your my heart just broke for her, like watching her be stripped of her opinions and uh, and value. And then, you know, at the very end, um, begrudgingly going through with it. it was just like, oh, no, girl, don't do that, please. Yeah. And then 
uh, and then Falco like sneaks out the door like, ha ha, made it happen. Like he was the good guy kind of, you know, and, and I didn't know who I was supposed to be vibing with right there, but I knew who I was vibing with. And it was that poor woman who was about to be more or less raped. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely, man. I yeah. shouldn't chuckle when I say that, but it's just such a ridiculous thing in today's day and age that it's just like, ugh. Yeah, um, I get you. It's, uh, you know, I've never seen the show Mad Men, but this is kind of uh, how I picture Mad Men uh, to be. Yeah, totally. Confirm that or deny it, but uh, it's a good yeah, show. I've, it's a really good show. But I've yeah, always wanted it, to see it. It is kind of like that. I, I don't know that they're quite as bad, maybe, or at least like it's stretched out over time and not condensed, so it's like so persistent. Sure. But in the same respect, like it is kind of a show where not really a lot happens plot wise. And it's just, yeah, kind of okay. watching these people of various morality be people of various moralities, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. And uh, one thing I will say as well, this Ernest Lehman guy, he has uh, quite the storied career. He has won a crap ton of awards, uh, Academy Awards, that is, in addition to other awards. And just a few of the scripts that this guy has written. The original Sabrina, classic romantic comedy, North by Northwest thriller for Hitchcock, West Side Story, you may have heard of that one, and you also may have heard of another musical called The Sound of Music. This guy wrote all of those in addition to dozens of others. North by Northwest. Quite well for him. Hello, Dolly, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Dude, I noticed that too. Fucking crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. This whole movie stacked with talent. It is, absolutely. And as far as the stylized dialogue, so I have to admit, as much as I love the lines in and of themselves, and they are endlessly quotable, a lot of them, I don't know. It was a very odd decision to have every other aspect of your movie so committed to realism and then have one of the primary aspects of film being the screenplay be completely stylized. And I thought that was a little weird. Like it was a little incongruent for me, that juxtaposition of heavy, heavy stylization from the screenplay and then like a slavish devotion to realism from a visual aesthetic. And that, and that kind of contradicted itself at times for me. Yeah, I could see that. No notes. I, I did definitely... <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I, w- I, I didn't hate it, though. Uh, I thought it made it fun. I, I didn't thought it hate made it, it either. Slick. It's just kind I of think like that... I said, the issues that I had with it where it's like it's kept me from liking it more than I did. See, I, I disagree. That's where, that's where you lose me. Because if you go cut and dry with the dialogue and it's, uh, damn it, Sydney, you have to stop this. I must bang my sister. And then it's, you know, um, <laughs> that's all you get. But instead you like layer on the smoothness, the suaveness, the, the savoir faire of it all, you know? Um, and yeah, I, I think that that's what makes this so gives these people charm. Otherwise they're just hateful people doing hateful things with no MacGuffin and no ticking clock. This movie I mean, is they a still turd are. sandwich. They really it's still that, are. They just talk I entertainingly. Get it. It, but you're correct. It's a it's skippy ribs <laughs> with a whole lot of wonderful, wonderful dripping barbecue sauce in the language. <laughs> and the dialogue is that sweet, sweet sauce, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then we do get an appropriate final scene where, you know, JJ calls up the corrupt police chief and tells him to go ahead and beat up Sydney and bring him in on this charge. And we're going to go ahead and take that silly uh, marijuana commie story. And, oh, no, it wasn't the guy, Steve. It was actually this press agent, Sydney. That'll learn him to, to, to 
contradict me, right? And so, you know, he does and they do and they beat him up and they bring him in and the film kind of ends. Funny little anecdote at the very end, that cop was actually supposed to be played by Ernest Borgnine. However, it just so happens that old Ernie was busy suing the producers of this movie, <laughs> <laughs> including Burt Lancaster, because a, because a couple of years prior, I had no idea about this. They actually produced the film Marty, which, if you recall, was an old romantic comedy with Ernest Borgnine that I had actually watched recently that I think I'm still going to do a five minute review on. It's probably not out yet, but yeah, and it won Best Picture and Best Screenplay. It was a Patty Chayefsky screenplay. Yep. And yeah, and so that movie did way better than anybody expected it to, in large part because of its Academy Award prestige. And so he basically said that he had a bunch of unpaid wages from back end points that he was never paid. So he was in the middle of suing the producers, and they were like, Yeah, I don't think we're going to let you bring him on for this one. Sorry, Alexander. Try again. But either way, that is the end of the film's sweet smell of success. A lot to love here, uh, a lot to not love. And, you know, this is going to be kind of a, a divisive film. Uh, you know, I think that it's got a stellar reputation, right? I mean, people love this film. This is in the Criterion Collection. This is, you know, 8 point whatever on IMDb. It's, I'm sure, in the top 250 films, maybe even in the top 100. And... It's just kind of really interesting to kind of come into a film like that expecting it to be one thing and then getting a very different experience. You know, this was not at all the film that I thought that we were going to be exposed to. And there was a lot to appreciate about the film. And obviously, as I have said, there hasn't. Real quick, before we get into our three adjectives and final ratings, Ryan, I do think this is a great time to go ahead and pimp the... Esoterica Cinema Hotline and ask you guys what you think about this film, right? Because this is a very well-made film. It's an exceptionally well-made film about really horrible people. And I know some people don't have a problem with that. Some do. Give us a call if you have seen Sweet Smell. Let us know what you think. We'll get your opinions on a future episode. And that number is 818-483-6285. What did you, listener, think about the film Sweet Smell of Success? Does it work for you? Does it not? And why? With that out of the way, Ryan, let's go ahead. And I'm going to ask you for your three adjectives for Sweet Smell of Success. Uh, my three adjectives are spitfire because of the dialogue and everything we talked about. It's all the sweet sauce. Uh, you know, you get lines like, your fish four days old and I won't buy it. Or, <laughs> I mouth as big one. as a barrel and twice as empty. Uh, or, <laughs> my personal favorite, and I had to look up the context of this because I didn't get it on first pass. And it sounded so weird that I knew there had to be a story behind it. And I found several. Uh, Say something funny, Mr. Hassenpfeffer. Which, Hassenpfeffer is a German stew. Germans were seen as foul back then because of the whole Nazi thing. He's stewing mm. over being dumped. This is at the very end of the film. This is in context of Susan telling this to her boy, uh, her musician boyfriend trying to get rid of him. And it's a rabbit stew. And you're horny like a rabbit. So it's like, you're horny, you're stewing, you're German. 
get the fuck out of my face. So yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of layers going on <laughs> with these, some of this dialogue. Uh, son, I don't relish shooting a mosquito with a elephant gun, so why don't you just shuffle along? Uh, I hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. Uh, don't remove the gangplank, Sydney. You may want to get back on board. It's <laughs> all these fucking amazing lines, dude. It's so good. Uh, my next one is methodical. Again, because of all the reasons we said, the blocking, the lighting. This is a well-oiled machine. This is, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just flawless. Like, it's you look at this from a technical aspect, and it's like, holy shit, dude. Like, they're just firing on all cylinders. The, the, the I mean, just, you think of as an actor delivering lines like that. I can barely read lines like that without tri- tripping over <laughs> my own tongue. Uh, they got to memorize all this dialogue and spit it out and hit their marks and watch their lighting and interact with each other and wait for their cues. Incredible. All with a team of 100 people all standing around. You know, and then the last one is... Uh, genreless. I kind of feel like this is one of those genreless movies. We've mentioned that before. Um, it's not really, I guess it's kind of a drama. Um, it has comedic elements. There's no action. Um, so I guess it's a drama, but there was nothing really dramatic. There's no, there's no MacGuffin. Um, it's just kind of when you strip away all the barbecue sauce, you're left with nothing. And so, um, yeah, it's really, a. Uh, a failed, att- uh, an excellent attempt at a failed movie, or I don't know what, what, but yeah, it's genreless. Spitfire, methodical, genreless. Jason, how about you, buddy? Yeah, for me, so I've got a uh, compliment sandwich with disappointment bread here for you. My first one is <laughs> rushed, and I feel like this yeah. film just moved too quickly through everything. Like I said, uh, that that was a conscious decision to err on the side of realism, but. I feel like it really prevents the audience from latching on in that early first act, you know, to where we're just sitting here and we're in it the whole time. Yeah, we didn't even mention this movie is only an hour and a half. It's a fast paced movie. I mean, thankfully, it really didn't feel like it needed to waste another half hour of our time on a story that's so threadbare, right? Like there really wasn't, there's barely enough there to, you know, support 90 minutes or whatever. So, I mean. And that Hensecker opening is like 10 minutes, I feel like. So there goes 10 minutes of it, you know, because that whole back and forth with the senator and then the back and forth with Tony Curtis. And then he walks out on the street, you know, we follow him out and he's like, I love this dirty town. And then yeah. you know, the swanky <laughs> jazz kicks in. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And my second adjective is proficient. I mean, again, like I think yes. if you just listen to me talk about the technical aspects of this film and the direction and the writing, and all of that with no aspect of story. You know, you'd think that I was getting ready to give this film, you know, a solid, solid rating, and I'm not. And But again, there's there's so much to respect about this film. You know, there really, really is. And I can't speak highly enough to the things that work in this movie because they're very, very well done. Sure. And which leads into the third adjective and my main reason for what's going to be a middling rating, which is it's unpleasant. It's just an unpleasant movie, you know, at the (laughs) end of the day, it is not pleasant to sit through. Maybe there is some fun to be had, like you're talking about with some of those dialogue quotes. But like, to me, this feels more like a film that's more fun to talk about than watch. Right. And, you know, when we're on the phone and we're bullshitting and, you know, one of us says something and the other says, ah, you're a cookie full of arsenic, Jason or Ryan. Right. Like that's going to be a lot of fun and all of these things. But again, just sitting here and watching some guy desperately, desperately try to suck up to this rich, powerful person for just a shred of professional help. 
and then turn around and watch this guy try to resist the urge to bang his sister and then watch her try to throw herself off a balcony right. and peace out. I mean, if, if, if listeners, if that sounds like fun to you, then you'll love this movie. It's great, bright, but I don't think most people are going to hear that storyline and be like, interesting. That definitely sounds like something I want to check out, right? Like, bang your sister, totally... eh? Tell me more about this film. <laughs> this is only a movie that people who have seen too many other movies watch, right? Like you and I. It's a cinephile film. It's a movie to have an opinion on. It's a movie that is, again, respectable. Like, this is a movie you can talk about in film circles for hours and hours, right? Like we've spent sure. an hour and a half here today and we could probably go twice that if we wanted to delving into additional specifics. And there's a lot more real life stuff that happened behind the scenes and, you know, uh, correlations to real life people and stuff that we could delve into that we just don't need to. But again, just none of it is pleasant to sit through. So rushed, proficient and unpleasant. All of this, I'm going to go ahead and give my star rating first. Resulting in three out of five stars for Sweet Smell Fair. of Success. This is a film yep. that I respect immensely, that I did not enjoy. Like I said, the only other film I can think of in recent memory that I had this reaction to was Uncut Gems. And I know that you disagree and a lot of people disagree with me about that. A lot of people think Uncut Gems is a great film and a brilliant film. And I'll admit that it's brilliantly made. I didn't find Sandler's performance as good as everyone else, but very, very well-made film that I never want to sit through again. Yeah, and, no, you know, I don't think I would disagree with you on that. Yeah, but How at the that? same time, I do think that I might rewatch this film again, like a few years down the road, because I would. I think that I understand the film now. You know, I definitely was expecting something different, like definitely expecting sure. more, more of the mystery thriller aspect of a noir, maybe with sort of like a, a media commentary undertone or something like that. Yeah, um, but this was not that more of a plot. Yeah, yeah, but I, but, <laughs> but again, the there's just there's so much that we talked about, and I do think you know I kind of I kind of hate to say this because I do think that every film needs to stand on its own, but I do think once you factor in that the these this is based on real people and their real stories, it does kind of change the perspective a little bit. You know, a little bit. It gives a reason yeah. for you to include some of these less savory elements. Well, um, you know, before I get my grain rating, I'll go ahead and tack on that. Uh, all this movie made me want to do was go and watch the Hudsucker Proxy. Not only uh, <laughs> because the, the titular name is similar to Hensucker, uh, but also because the Hudsucker Proxy, ha like, it ticks all those boxes. It's got the witty Spitfire dialogue. It's written sure. by the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi. Um, and you're getting that dialogue delivered by none other than Paul Newman. Tim Robbins and Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Who is Jason probably Lee my favorite gets, part of the movie. She's so great in that movie. She's I so love great. every moment yes. of her delivery. Right. And instead of seeing this chauvinistic bullshit shove the woman aside and use them as pawns and prostitutes to get ahead, she's the power player in the totally. whole thing. And kind of yeah. the glue that holds uh, Tim Robbins together through all of it. Um, but so, yeah, I love that movie so much. It's Same. one of my all-time favorite Coen Brothers films, I probably in my top three, to be honest. I love that movie so much. And nice. uh, rather than all this slander and trying to bang your sister, um, it's about the hula hoop. So it's fun <laughs> <laughs> for the kids, right? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, 
yeah, just, you know, this film is great. I think everybody should see it once. The film history of it, everything we mentioned, I think we ticked up, you know, we, we did our jobs as discussion guys uh, to cover it. But uh, if you want to just skip it all together, go watch The Hudsucker Proxy. I like that movie more. Um, personally, I'm giving this one, much like yourself, Jason, for all the same reasons, I'm giving this a straight ahead B. Nice. Solid, yeah. And 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 look, I think wherever you fall on the spectrum of your reaction to this film, you're right. Like, you can justify sure. pretty much all the different reactions to this film for all the different reasons that we discussed. And it's really right. just going to come down to what you personally find appealing or not about films and story and all of that. So, But I right. think that everybody listening has a very solid idea of this film if they haven't watched it yet and what they would be getting into checking it out. But for real though, watch the Hudsucker Proxy, everybody. Jason. Watch the Hudsucker Proxy. <laughs> it's on our list too. Week, buddy? Hopefully one day the, the gods smile upon us and deliver us that film because it's on our list. And then Hopefully that all day of you is people today, have my to friend. listen to it. <laughs> Hopefully that day is today. Let's, uh, let's roll let's them dice, son. Absolutely. Now before that, we do want to just remind you all where you can check us out. Of course, you can hit us up on the socials, Twitter and Instagram at Esoterica Cinema. And you can also reach out to us via email, esotericacinema at gmail.com. As you know, we love muffin-related stories. We love crepe-related stories. And we also enjoy hearing your opinions about movies and our shows. Feel free to hit us up at any of those places. You're also free, once again, to go ahead and call that hotline. That's right. The Esoterica Cinema Hotline, which of course can be reached at 818-483-6285. Let us know what you thought about Sweet Smell or let us know about what you think about anything under the sun. Again, we want to hear your muffin stories. Please, I need muffin stories. I have not put any muffin story up yet on any of season three and I need that. Deliver it, please and thank you. And, of course, you can go ahead and check out our website. Our website is crushing it these days, esotericacinema.com. We've got a new refresh, depending on how recently you've been there, but we refresh towards the beginning of this of this season three, and we've got a brand new logo that hopefully you guys dig, a little bit different color scheme. We have the web player where you can listen to the last four episodes right there on the main page. You can also link to a separate page that has every single episode we've done on our dedicated web page with a dedicated web listener. You can link to all the different platforms, Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. And you can also check out our master list. That's right. If you'd like to play along, we encourage you to go to esotericacinema.com right now where you will see a live viewable PDF of the 200 films on our list right now. And we're just going to go ahead and play along as we select at random our next movie from our master list of films. Will it be the Hudsucker Proxy? Which, by the way, this is 100% random, you guys. As you've heard, we use random.org. I don't finagle the system if Hudsucker Proxy, which the odds are so incredibly low, gets picked, that will be 100% honest. Uh, but again, like that's like the odds are 0.5% if I'm doing my math right. So uh, don't get your hopes up. And of course, like I said, we do use random.org for all of our true random number generators. And if you're looking at the list, you'll know we've got some bangers on there. We've got some old classic animation like Akira and Ghost in the Shell. Uh, we've got some really sort of classic Tim Burton and Big Fish and Ed Wood. 
We've got, speaking of the Coen brothers, we've got the film they won an Academy Award for. That's right, No Country for Old Men. Fun stuff like Kung Fu Hustle, Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, all over the place. And we're going to go ahead and make it official and see what film we're going to select this week. Random.org, 1 through 200. We push the button. It generates a number. That number today is 14. That's right, number 14. And if you go to number oh, 14, <laughs> Ryan, by the way, I know that I know that all of these are like all of our films and it, you know, like, but that being said, I think every single film we've looked at this year, except Sweet Smell of Success was a film you put on our list. So everything is coming up Ryan this year. <laughs> nice. Which, which apparently makes everybody. up. Which apparently makes up for all of those foreign films in season one. That yeah. <laughs> clearly, hey man, <laughs> all the Kurosawa it, and uh, Werner Herzog that I put on there that you had to sit through. Yeah, I mean, look, we started with RoboCop. Obviously, that's you know whatever. <laughs> but uh, we got into Amadeus and oh, and they were bangers. And, Election. Yeah, yeah, we're getting. You know, these it. are all films. And this that is I'm no super different. Glad to have seen. I'm yeah. really curious how you take this because we all know how Me, you feel about this, gentlemen. I don't think everybody does know about that. So we did not get number 13, which is a simple plan, which, by the way, is a great and very underrated Sam Raimi movie that I hope we come yeah. back to. We also did not get the one immediately after that Badlands from Terrence Malick, his first movie, which I like some Terrence Malick and I don't like some Terrence Malick. And I haven't seen that one, so definitely want to check that out. No, we are doing 1976. Assault on Precinct 13. Now, if you don't know, what Ryan is referring to is the fact that I famously heavily dislike John Carpenter, okay? And I know, (laughs) I know that's blasphemy. I have received the only amount of hate that I've received that is comparable to my take on Tucker and Dale versus Evil has been my take on John Carpenter, which is a lazy filmmaker. This guy has never met a wide shot that he didn't want to film his entire movie in. (laughs) I think if he could, he would just roll his film, his camera for two hours in a wide shot on a proscenium view, let everyone act out the entire thing on a stage and then cut print. Let's go home and do blow. I'm, I'm convinced. So I am so, not so traditionally. His, so Jason, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the camera <laughs> up on top of that building. We're going to put a 14 millimeter lens on it. Okay. Face it in this direction. See that direction? Okay. That direction is precinct 13. Okay. Now all we got to do <laughs> is assault that direction and we got a movie. I could be home by six, banging my wife, doing some lines of blow. It's 1976. Let's do this. absolutely man and here's the thing i love john carpenter's content i love the idea of they live and i love tony keith in that role even though roddy piper is a really shitty actor but like i want to love they live and it's good short of being great i feel the same way about the thing it's very good and parts of the thing are very enjoyable and i love all the makeup effects but it's not a It's not a super well-made film. I'm about to get just have so many people jump up my ass on Twitter right now for saying that. You're about to have me jump up your ass right now on this goddamn show. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth, Jason. (laughs) Of course, the classic Halloween, which was probably very innovative at the time. But, you know, as someone who grew up on Scream, which, you know, it's not fair to John Carpenter because Wes Craven totally stole everything from him to make Scream, but that was the one that I grew up on all the time, so when I went back to Halloween, it's like, ah, I've seen this, but much better, right? So it's just, 
There's a lot of stuff. Didn't love Escape from New York. I didn't. I got love, five words. Uh, I'm gonna shove up your mouth hole, my friend, and that is big trouble in little goddamn China. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't love that one either. There's a, there's oh. a few interesting scenes, but it's just honestly, dude. Like, I just really like Kurt Russell. So I think my okay. favorite part of that movie is just his little monologue at the beginning, and then I can piece the hell out. Dude, and that's the fact, you, Jack, man. You got the, the 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 Asian sorcery at the end, and the the sewer monster, cool. and the Raiden, Raiden the, shows up. Awesome. The 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 yeah, but long before Raiden existed, like it's not <laughs> I like know, he ripped these I things know. off. Sure at the time, it was much more. I could have appreciated it more, but like, but like all the, of these things have been the done schlocky better, effects something. of the the one guy's face expands and I, pops, you know, you know, like a balloon, and yeah, dude, I these are all Jason things. Get off of your high horse, Jason. Come into oh, the yes. It's okay. Yes. That's what it is. The guy who gave five stars to Dead Alive is on his high horse. That's absolutely what it is. This is why I'm shocked you don't like Big Trouble in Little China or They Live. <laughs> I understand. Look, I get it. I what do you're saying. like They Live. No, don't say I don't. I never said I don't like They Live. I own They oh. Live. I've seen it several times. I enjoy okay. it, but it would have been a better movie with the exact same everything else made by a different director. I'm telling you, his okay. style is lazy. He shoots everything in wides. All of all of his movies feel like they belong on TBS at 3 p.m. on a Tuesday. Well, here we go, because buckle up, Buttercup, because we're dealing with Assault from Precinct 13, which has a budget of $100,000. Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, and Google summarizes this as when the LAPD kills several members of the South Central Gang, Street Thunder. Oh, dude, I am so fucking into this. I've never seen <laughs> this, by the way. chubbed up so hard right yes. now. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, the remaining members avenge themselves by way of a bloody war waged against cops and citizens alike. Caught in the crossfire is Lieutenant Ethan Bishop played by Austin Stoker, whoever that is, uh, who's managing a skeleton crew at the local and soon-to-be-closed police precinct. As the gang members close in, Bishop forms an unlikely alliance with a group of prisoners in order to defend the station and the lives of everyone in it. From November 3rd, 1976, from John Carpenter, starring a bunch of people you've never heard of. I'm so stoked. They did remake this, I think, in the 90s, early 2000s. Never saw that one either. Um, but yeah, I think this is his first film, if I'm not mistaken. Is it not? No, it's not. Uh, his first film was, was it Dark Halloween? Star. No, his first film oh, was okay. Dark Star, which was a Dark 2001 Star, okay. parody. But this did precede Halloween, though. I'm checking. Yeah, Halloween was 78. Yeah. I, it was the film. So. It, it's probably, it must be the film right before Halloween then, right? It is. Cool. Well, there you go. Well, that's it for this episode of Esoterica Cinema. Hopefully you enjoyed our review of Sweet Smell of Success. And look, you know, watch the film at least once. It's it's a film that you should definitely have seen, have an opinion on. There's a lot to like there. There's a lot not to, but definitely worth the discussion. And then we will be back in two weeks with our review of John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. And perhaps the very last episode of the show. Like, we might end it after this because uh, Jason and I might be at each other's throats. This might be Assault on Esoterica <laughs> Cinema. So definitely tune in for this one. And listen, if you're out there and you've seen that and you want to get ahead of the game, call the hotline because I'm going to need all the support I can get for this. Uh, Jason needs to hear about it. I need to hear about it if you hate John Carpenter too. Um, so call us in with some hot takes to the hotline and uh, so and we'll, we'll try to get you on the air or, or on the episode thereafter. So uh, we definitely want to hear that. Once again, 818-483-6285. We look forward to your notes and we will see you in two weeks for another full-length episode of Esoterica Cinema.